After 9-11, Toni Morrison wrote these words. Some have God's words. Others have songs of comfort for the bereaved. But I would not say a word until I could set aside all I know or believe about nations, wars, leaders, the governed and ungovernable, all I suspect about armor and entrails. To speak to you, she said, the dead of September 11, I must not claim false intimacy or summon an overheated heart glazed just in time for a camera. I must be steady and I must be clear, knowing all the time that I have nothing to say, no words stronger than the steel that pressed you into itself, no scripture older or more elegant than the ancient atoms you have become. Where were you when the world stopped turning? This is the question Alan Jackson asks in his song about 9-11. Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? We all remember where we were and what we were doing. Like the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, September 11th has become our generation's day that will live in infamy. 20 years ago, when the planes were hijacked and the Pentagon was attacked and the World Trade Center towers came crashing down, ending so many lives, grieving thousands of families, shaking the foundation of our nation, I was sitting on the couch in my trailer in Boys Creek, North Carolina, in the third week of college classes, watching it on television, completely stunned. At the time, I was an Army officer serving as a leader of an infantry unit in Lumberton, North Carolina. My dad was the first person to call me, and I'll never forget his words. I picked up the phone and he said, son, you're going to war. It turned out he was wrong about me, thank God, but he was right about America. I ended up in seminary instead, which some might say is not much better than Iraq. But the terror that gripped my heart when I watched the towers fall and heard my father's words is a feeling I will never forget. Later that afternoon, one of my friends came over and we hugged each other and just cried. Like the country, we were in shock, terrified and grieving. It was a collective grief that united us all. And I remember that grief, and I bet you do too. Which is why this week I wrote to Dr. Steve Shoemaker, my predecessor, to thank him for leading our church through 9-11, and I asked him if he could remember what he said in those days after the attack. And he replied, I had this sense that the nation and the church's first best response to the attack of 9-11 was to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To grieve together. Steve said, I led the church into lamentation Using Miguel Unamuno's words from The Tragic Sense of Life, where he wrote, I am convinced that we could solve many things if we went into the streets and uncovered our griefs. 
which perhaps would prove out to be one sole common grief, and join together in beweeping them and crying aloud to the heavens and calling upon God. The chiefest sanctity of a temple is that it is a place where people go to weep in common. Those days with Steve's leadership, our church became a place of collective mourning where people came to weep in common. Because in the blink of an eye, America, our home sweet home, as we knew it, changed forever. It was the end of our innocence and the beginning of a new America, reborn like a phoenix out of the ashes and rubble that covered ground zero. It was an America ushered into stages of grief and loss, but who stopped short at anger and spiraled into vengeance. It was an America that became more patriotic and unified than at any time since World War II, yet was spun into waves of anti-Muslim sentiment and racial profiling, decades of mass shootings, a war on terror, 20 years of conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan. Today, the America born out of the ash and rubble of our innocence, grief and trauma and anger has grown up into a 20-year-old nation. And even though we are not legally old enough to drink yet, this young country finds itself now more divided than ever, uncertain about our future, unsure about who we want to be, staggering around like a drunken college student through the second wave of a global pandemic that is killing more people every other day right now than died on 9-11. But without now the collective mourning or unity we had back then. Just as we were on September 12th, America stands at a crossroads today. Which way will we turn? What will become of our home? As I reflected on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 this week, I was reminded there are over 80 million Americans who weren't born when the terrorist attacks happened, including my daughter, who is only 11 years old. A few months ago, we were watching a movie mentioned 9-11 and Lucy said, Daddy, what's 9-11? It hadn't occurred to me that she didn't know and needed to know, so we started watching videos of the attack and hearing stories of the victims and families and first responders. And later, her mother called me to tell me that Lucy was now scared to fly on a plane because of 9-11. And I realized I might need a class on parenting. But I also realized that she had discovered an amnesiac America who cannot or will not remember its own troubled history, yet instructs her to never forget 9-11. It was like she woke up in a new country, walked into a brand new home. Over the last month, we've done that as well, as we watched 20 years of war come to an abrupt and tragic end with the withdrawal of American troops and the evacuation of 122,000 of people as Kabul fell to the Taliban. How bittersweet the homecoming was for American soldiers. How terrifying Afghanistan has now become as a home under Taliban rule. How overwhelming the homesickness must be for thousands of Afghan immigrants and refugees. What do we do when home, as we knew it, is lost? On the 4th of July, Reverend Tara preached a sermon where she said, home may not always be home, 
and have the same comfort as you journey through life. Where you call home, others may call hell. Where I feel home, others may feel marginalized. She said, and now is a time when what traditionally felt like home or was seen as home won't cut it anymore. Home is not just our past, though. The good news is our present is home, created out of safety, love, and compassion, and respect. And so here we are on Homecoming Sunday, what we traditionally call Startup Sunday. And it's always been a homecoming for our people, a return to church from the travels of summer, the beginning of a new school year, of a new church season. But the reality is today we are not fully home yet. Home is both here and not yet, realized and unrealized. We are not fully home yet because everyone has not come back. And we lost some along the way. Others are watching online. Some are too far away to be in person with us now. Others are too vulnerable. Even we who are here must follow safety protocols, meaning we can't eat that barbecue on the grounds that we love like we would every year. At this stage in the pandemic, a true homecoming remains yet to be out on the horizon for us. Times have changed. So has our home. What does it mean to celebrate homecoming when home is different? What does it mean to come home when home has changed? Reverend Mia reminded me this week of the words of Warson Shire who says, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. We've all experienced that, haven't we? The change or the loss of home. We come home from college to find our parents have turned our bedroom into a workout area. We come home to an empty house after the tragic loss of someone we love. We come home to a church we've been a part of for years and it just doesn't feel the same. These experiences require that we redefine and recreate what we mean by home. In The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy is so bored at home in Kansas, she's singing somewhere over the rainbow, hoping to escape, dreaming of a better life far away, but by the end she's clicking her heels and chanting, there's no place like home. When we are forced by time or circumstance to reimagine and recreate our understanding of home, it helps to remember eternal truths. Like home is where the heart is. Home is where you make it and what you make it. Or one of my favorites from Ram Das about life. We're all just walking each other home. The parable of the prodigal son is the quintessential homecoming story. Everyone in the Western world has heard it. It's not only familiar but famous, well-loved and over-preached. The most well-known parable in all of Scripture, one of the most well-known stories in human history. It has inspired millions and been reimagined by the greatest and most influential artist the world has ever known. It's ingrained so deeply in our collective conscience that we employ its themes without even knowing where they come from. For centuries, go gospel theologians and others have called this parable Evangelium in Evangelio, the gospel within the gospel, and nearly everyone who wrestles with it ends up in some sense of awe at its inexhaustible content. And most of you already know that Prodigal Son is not the title of this story, but a heading St. Jerome added in 382 A.D. in his Latin translation for the Bible. Parable, the Bible doesn't have any titles in it, in case you were wondering. Parables don't have titles for a reason. Titles put stories in cages. 
domesticate them until they become easy, mundane, and impotent. A parable cannot be managed by a title. Jesus didn't need Jerome's help, or ours for that matter, to tell a good story. Not to mention the title we came up with narrowly focuses the interpretation to one member of the family. No, this story is not about the younger son, the prodigal. It is a story about a home, a family. And families are way more complex than titles that we give them. And if you've read Henry Nouwen, you know that this story is not about the younger son, but the father and the older brother as well. Because Jesus told this story to a mixed audience. Tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him as well as Pharisees and the scribes who were grumbling and saying to themselves, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them, how dare he? The entire parable is framed by the radical boundary-breaking inclusion of sinners and tax collectors and the grumbling of the Pharisees and scribes. That Greek word, I love it, translated grumbling is diagoguzo, imitates the sound of squawking birds or buzzing bees to describe a crowd of human beings and how they sound when they are murmuring constantly, intensely, and indignantly with obnoxious complaints. Picture a school board meeting. To silence their diagoguzo, Jesus placed his audience into the story. The sinners become the prodigal son. The religious leaders become the elder brother. And when the father in the parable saw his son from far off, we know he ran like the wind and wouldn't even let his son finish his rehearsed speech before declaring what was lost had now been found. He proclaimed, kill the fatted calf, get out the nicest robes, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. We must celebrate. One can hardly imagine a more dramatic illustration of the love that the gospel commands, a love that loves before it's loved. A love that runs headlong in compassion with no concern for dignity. A love that forgives before it is requested. A love that waits for no apology to offer grace. A love that heaps extravagant gifts on those who've squandered all they've been given. A love that embraces ones who reject us. A new life given to those who wished our death. A love that overturns traditions and breaks the bonds of shame. A love that welcomes people back into the community that wants to harm them, a love that leaves the house to restore what has been lost, a love that goes off to bring people back together and welcomes the lost back into the family. This is the kind of love that has the power to change houses, families, churches, and nations. But as the Pharisees and scribes revealed, not everyone rejoices about this kind of love, do they? When the older brother came in from the fields and heard the music and the dancing, he became angry and refused to come into the party. And so his father came out and began pleading with him. But the son said, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you and never disobeyed your command and you never gave me even a young goat so I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, by the way, that wasn't in the story yet, you killed the fatted calf for him. Seething with resentment, the older brother wouldn't even call the prodigal his kin, but disowned him, saying, this son of yours. And yet the father graciously replied, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because your brother, who was dead, has come back to life. 
What was lost has been found. I'll never forget when my parents brought my younger brother a brand new jet black Volvo S40 for his 16th birthday. He looked at me and he said, hey Ben, where's your Volvo? I thought I was going to kill him. Sometimes we become resentful when good things happen to others. Like somehow grace shown to another person is unfair or unjust to us. It's a privilege that does that to us. Causes us to feel unseen or unheard simply because we're not the center of attention anymore. And just because the center has shifted, widened, or expanded, as the saying goes, when we're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. The Father's house is a lot like a nation or a church. Sometimes those of us who have been in the country or the church a long time and labored for years feel unseen, unheard, or even dismissed simply because the focus is now on new things or new people. We feel excluded simply because others are being included or neglected because others are receiving attention. But this reveals that we've forgotten what home was really about in the first place. Our family, our nation, our church was never about privilege, but people. It was about the community. The party the father threw was not for the prodigal son, but the entire household. One person can't eat an entire cow. A fatted calf can feed over a thousand people. This was a party for the family, for the neighborhood, for the entire community, including the older brother and his friends. He just couldn't see it. Civilization in the Bible is a story of sibling rivalry. Brothers at war with each other, Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, Moses, Arian and Miriam, Amnon and Absalom. And throughout the story, the parents keep choosing one. God favors one brother over another, over and over again, often the younger son. But Jesus comes and turns the tables on this story. He proclaims that he wants both brothers at the table. He calls out from the shoreline to Andrew and to Peter, to James and to John. He invites the younger brother, come follow me, and says, but I want your older brother too. The father pleaded with his oldest son, the celebration of your brother's return doesn't mean I love you any less. I love you as much as I've always loved you. In fact, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours, literally. You're the oldest. You'll inherit it all. And when I die, all this will be yours. Not one robe, but every robe. Not one ring, every ring. Every fatted calf, all the land. All the houses. Even your brother. Can't you see? Love is not a zero-sum game. I love you both extravagantly. My compassion for your brother costs you nothing. But to our home, it means everything. Homecoming is supposed to be a party. And while we can't celebrate today like we ordinarily would, we can still rejoice. The point of this parable is not the prodigal son, the pouting elder, or the paterfamilias, but the party. Where all people are welcome, where there is music and dancing, 
where there's more than enough to go around, where sinners and Pharisees, tax collectors and scribes, prostitutes and prodigals, newcomers and long-timers, young and old, all come together to feast and celebrate. The fiesta, where everyone is welcome, is called the kingdom of God, the household of God, the homecoming of God. Everyone is invited. We want everyone to celebrate. But if our welcome of those who've been cut off or marginalized from community causes you to stand outside in, resent, in resentment instead of coming to the party, then we are grieved by that. And we're going to come out and plead with you to come on in. And if necessary, we might even beg you to come and eat and drink and dance with us because we're not above begging. This parable has a cliffhanger ending. We don't know if the elder son ever came to the party. We know the Pharisees and scribes did not listen. No, they remained stuck in their resentment and continued excluding people, plotting to kill Jesus. But a parable with no conclusion remains open-ended, which means the invitation always remains open. The doors to the fiesta are never closed to anyone, including the elder brother or the resentful religious leader standing outside. There's a party going on at our church right now in these days in the midst of a pandemic. No, it's not filled with barbecue or sweet tea, but it's filled with love, and it's all about people. People who feel the Spirit moving. People who want to sing and dance together to survive a plague. People whose lives are being changed and transformed. People who are building a new home and a new community together. It may not be homecoming yet, but it could be, because homecoming is about people. A community who is constantly widening the margins and consistently expanding God's extravagant grace to all, young and old, in and out, new and long time, happy or disgruntled. No matter who you are, the party is for you. You have been invited, and we want you here. We want to dance with you, sing with you, walk with you and talk with you, eat with you and drink with you, learn with you and grow with you, laugh with you, cry with you, work with you, pray with you, love with you. The church must always be a place where we come not only to weep in common, but to rejoice in common, a community of collective celebration. Yes, things have changed. Yes, home is a little different. But home has always been about people, people on a journey, people who want you to come in and join the party. Everyone is being eternally invited. All we have to do is come home to ourselves, leave behind our pride and privilege, release our resentment, uncross our arms so we can embrace our neighbors and come home. Amen.